invite you to take your scriptures, if you would, and turn back to that First John passage. First John chapter three. I'm going to check and see if that's me making that noise. Maybe it was me. There you go. First John chapter three. I think you'd agree with me when I say both loving and hating are problems in American culture. I think it's too often true that we hate to love and we love to hate. Our our response, and you can see it all around us, to volatile issues like racism and sexual morality, uh, gender views, political positions, they sometimes leave you wondering if America is ever going to properly and rightly navigate through the thick fog of our cultural divisions. Oh, that it was just verbal sparring that took place in America, then we'd be not so bad. But the epidemic goes way further than that of mass shootings and street violence, and all these things have become often too commonplace in our day. Churches and schools and people of all kinds and places of all kinds are not immune from the effects of the problems that we have in love and hate in our cities. And of course, this love-hate problem that we share as humanity isn't restricted to the borders of America by any stretch. It is certainly a world issue. And we as humans have a difficulty with loving like we should and not hating as we do. Where does it all come from? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask secular psychology, the answer will be that We are a product of our environment, that that's just the way you grew up in your family or that's where you were uh, brought up in a city or a certain place and location or how people were and their influence has made you violent or hateful. If you ask science, science will say that the love issue problem, love hate issue problem can be reduced to the hard wiring in your brain, that it's your chemistry, it's the way that you were brought and some people have that. And some people don't as much. And that's what Michael Roos said in a book that he entitled, Why We Hate. And he tried to explain away our responsibility, blaming it all on neurons. If you ask philosophy, they'll tell you this, that our love-hate issue stems from a lack of education. If you would evolve more and get more instruction and more information, that we would far be better far off by far in our culture when it comes to loving and hating properly. The Apostle John, as you expect, disagrees with all of those views. In contrast to that, he tells us anew, here's a word for you, pathology. It means the beginnings, the study of beginnings. And he says, listen, you know the problem with love and hate has been around for a long time, since the very beginning, and it did not originate in our environment, it didn't start with our brains, and it isn't a result of a lack or deficiency of education. John says the issue with love and hate stems from whether we are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. In fact, he lays out that general principle at the heart of his passage, both positively and negatively. Look at verse 14. He says, we know, here it is, we've passed, look at your scriptures, from death to life. You know why we know it? 
Because we love the brother. The ability to love someone sacrificially who is not like you, who doesn't always agree with you, and sometimes worse than that, irritates you and beyond. The ability to do that, he says. It doesn't come from your environment or any of those other places. You have it or you don't have it, the way that would glorify God, based on whether you have life or death abiding in you. He says it in a negative way in verse 15. Again, you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Why would someone hate someone to the extent that they would murder him? How could it ever go to that extreme? Here's why. Because they don't have life in them. See, today, listen, in your life and in our culture, loving rightly and hating in a right way or not being controlled by hate is a matter of life and death. Our subject today couldn't be any more important than that. And I say that to you because our problem with loving and hating is far deeper and far more problematic than most people in our culture think, and even perhaps you today. Our society, and can I say on a personal level, you and your life, you cannot fix the problem that you have with not loving as you should and not you're hating as you shouldn't. You can't fix that problem any more on your own than you could be if you gave someone life who was in the grave and was dead. The answer to a pervasive and continual love and hate struggle that we have. It's not situational. It's not biological. It's not social. Primarily, it is spiritual. So let me ask you, where do you go for counseling when the love in your marriage is come to slim or none? Maybe dissolved altogether. Where do you go and what answer are you looking for? Do you go somewhere for the answer being a new technique or a new therapy or perhaps a new pill? Or do you go somewhere where they tell you this, you know what you really need? You need a new life. Have you resolved that the family tension that you face is just broken relationships? Or have you figured out the perpetual undercurrent of hatred in your family and it's obvious because you feel it every time you get together, is more than, and it's not going to be conquered, and it's going to take more than just trying to be nicer or to avoid problematic conversations about topics that are heated. Do you ever get frustrated because you've tried some of those things and none of them seems to work and you don't know where else to go? May I ask you, what if, what if the problem about so much hate and so little love cannot be permanently and properly addressed apart from Jesus Christ? What if the answer to our love-hate struggle is not outward in a better environment? What if it's not inward in a better biology? What if the answer, the only real lasting answer, is upward and having Jesus in your life? What if the answer is a spiritual answer? See, I think John's telling us this morning, you can only sacrificially love others and you can only control the hatred that often swells up in your heart if Jesus Christ by faith has given you his life. To illustrate that truth, John is going to give us two archetypical stories. He's going to give us two competing narratives and they are between two firstborn men, one Cain and one Christ. And how they responded to their brothers. 
They are completely opposite stories, and John puts it that way because you know by now, I've stressed it every week, that his book is built on dualisms, love and hate, life and death, light and darkness, truth and lie. He goes back and forth, and he's adding a new one to his repertoire this morning, and he says, it's Cain or Christ. And he wants to make them opposite stories for this reason, because you and I this morning have to ask ourselves and answer the question, and it's this, are you Cain-like? Or are you Christ-like? Because Cain's, he has a story of having relationships when you are spiritually dead. That's Cain's story. And you're going to see what it looks like. But there is the Christ story. And the Christ story is having relationships when you are spiritually alive. They couldn't be any more polar opposite than that. And every single one of you in this room this morning lives in one of those stories. You are either Cain-like because you have no spiritual life, or you are Christ-like because you have his life. You'll find it easy to figure it out by the end of the message today because one is systemically marked by selfishness and the other one by selflessness. So let's unpack them one at a time. There's only two. First of all, let's see with this. What does it mean to be Cain-like? Look at verse 11 in our text. For this is the message we've heard from the beginning. Here's the message, that you should love one another. All right? Now he's going to show you. That's the point of the whole thing, that everyone who knows Christ should love one another. He's going to say it about 10 different times all throughout this book. But he's going to remind us now, here's what you should do. If you're like Christ, you should love one another. Let me tell you first off what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like Cain. The verse says... We should not be, verse 12, we should not be like Cain. See, all throughout 1 John, you know by now, seven times, and this is the last one, the climax of the usage of the little phrase from the beginning. He's basically retelling the Genesis story through Jesus and ultimately through us. And he uses all kinds of language about Genesis in the first few chapters and how those things that were true then are basically true now. And the options and the choices that they have are the choices and options that we have. Cain's story is, as you can imagine, it's a story about a lot of firsts. He's the first older brother. He's the first murderer, the first hate crime, the first unbeliever, the first seed of the devil. None of those things are very good because Cain's story is our story. It's the story about hate. And you often ask yourself, why did Cain kill his brother? First, to answer that, you have to ask, why did God not accept Cain's offering, but he did Abel's? God told both of them to bring a sacrifice. You could read this story for yourself in Genesis 4. They want, God wanted them to worship, and he said, here's what I want you to do. You come and bring an offering. So the Bible says that Cain brought an offering and Abel brought an offering, but Cain's Offering wasn't accepted, and Abel's was. Now, I thought about it, and I read the story. It's strange to me, because both of them had the same parents who knew God personally. And when I say personally, personally, I mean they talked with them. That's as personal as it gets. They both had the same parents. They both believed in God. It wasn't that Cain didn't. He wasn't an atheist. He, he didn't deny God. In fact, he has a conversation with God even after he does all the evil things he does. It wasn't that he didn't believe in him. And he didn't say, hey, Abel, you bring all the sacrifices you want. I ain't into that. And it's not what he says. 
He brings the sacrifice. He's not totally out there so far. He's not going to worship God at all. So what happened? Well, there's two theories. The one is that God told him to bring a blood sacrifice. Abel did because he had sheep and animals he brought up. And and Cain said, no, I want to bring my kind of sacrifice. And so he brought fruit instead because that's what he was, a gardener. Now, that's a good theory, and it's a pattern that shows itself in the Bible, but it's not mentioned in the text, and we wouldn't know. If it did, we wouldn't know that to be true by the text itself. But what we do know from the text, in Genesis 4 and verse 5, here's what it says. For God did not have any regard for Cain, listen, and his offering. I don't know because the Bible says that Abel brought the firstborn of the animals and the sheep and gave them to God. He gave God his best, the firstborn, right off the top. But all it says about Cain's offering is he brought the fruit of the ground because all throughout the Old Testament, he talks about the first fruits of all the things and the crops that you get. It seems as if Abel gave God his best. Cain gave God what he wanted to give him. Now, whether it was a blood sacrifice theory or what the Bible actually at least gives us indication that he didn't give him his best, he just brought something to God, we don't know for sure which one it is, but no matter which one it is, here's what's true. Cain worshiped God on his own terms. See, he wanted to worship God as he pleased. Hebrews 11.4 says this, by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice, a better sacrifice. Why was it better through which he commended that it was commended that he was righteous? Can I tell you this? The number one problem with Cain was Cain. It says God didn't regard Cain and his offering. The offering was unacceptable because Cain was unacceptable. Look at our text. First John says, you know why he murdered his brother? Because he was a bad guy. Yes, he was a bad guy. He was of the evil one. You remember our principle last week? Let's repeat it. What you do reveals who you are. You know why he murdered his brother? Because he was of the devil. And John 8 says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He did his family DNA. He had devil DNA, and so he lived it out in his relationships with people. That's what caused it. He had spiritual death inside, and it produced physical death and killing his brother on the outside. He was only living what he was, see. He didn't have God in DNA. See, Cain murdered his brother because the Bible says not only did he have evil origins, but it says this later on in the verse, it says, because his works were evil. See, he did, what he did revealed who he was. Murdering his brother revealed he was of the devil. But see, opposite of that, the scripture says Abel. See, Abel was righteous. See, he offered his in faith. He had spiritual life, Hebrews eleven four says. See, Cain, no faith, dead spiritually. Here it was. Abel, he had faith. He did what God asked him to do and gave God his best. Why? Because he had spiritual life inside. And can you see, look at verses 13 and 14. Encircle it in your text. See the little word because? See, it's a cause and effect thing. 
Cain did what he did because his works were evil. See, he was evil. But the opposite in verse 14 says, you know why we're able to love? Because we love the brother because Jesus lives in us. We are like Abel if we know Christ. Can I tell you this? Cain did not murder his brother because of his environment. He just came out of paradise. I think things were pretty good. He did not do it because of his brain science. He did not do it because he lacked knowledge. Here's why. The Bible says in verse 15, because we know this, no murderer has eternal life in him. You know what Cain's problem was? You know why his relationships were bad? You know why he murdered his brother? You know why he was controlled by hate? Listen, you know why? Well, it's very, he didn't have any life. He had no life in him. He had never passed from death to life. Let me tell you this. Today in America, we live in a Cain culture. It's one of the marks of the unbelieving world is hatred. Out there, outside these doors, again, not because we're better superior, but out there is a Cain culture, and a Cain culture that is primarily described by hatred. In fact, so much so that John feels that in his day it was the same and has to tell his people, look at verse 13, do not be surprised. You cannot walk out of here today and think that living in a hate hate-filled world, even if that hate is given to you at times, that should never surprise you. Why? Because our world, by and large, is marked by spiritual death. There is no life there, he says. Don't let it surprise you. In fact, look at the story. Cain killed Abel. All throughout the Old Testament, the theme of older brother, younger brother, persecution continues on. Cain killed his younger brother Abel. Joseph's brothers sold Joseph, their younger brother, into slavery. Ishmael wanted to kill Isaac, and Esau wanted to kill Jacob. David's brothers mocked him and tried to prohibit him when he killed Goliath. It is a pattern of the older, younger brother all through the Bible. And he says, if you've ever read the scriptures, pick it up and see. It's how it is in our world. And the reason is because in all those brother tandems, one of them had life and the other one had death. I watched a TED Talk this week, and the lady that gave the TED Talk was Sally Cohn. She wrote a book called The Opposite of Hate. Listen to the subtitle. It is a field guide to repairing our humanity. She thinks that we just have to do a fix-it job on ourselves to stop the hatred. She tells a story in her 15-minute monologue about when she was 10 years old growing up and she picked on a girl named Vicky. Vicky was awkward and had some problems and she said she wasn't the only one picking on Vicky. Everybody picked on Vicky. And she told a story about how awful she treated her. And she said over the years as she grew up, she's probably maybe in her 40s, so maybe this was 30 some years later, she went on social media, tried to find her. She wanted to ask her forgiveness. She said when she talked to Vicky... She wasn't too happy. She still remembered the event, and she told her how that event had helped shape her life to what it is today, and it wasn't good. She wasn't really looking to give forgiveness, but what she told Sally Cohn was this. Why don't you go and try to change the culture? (laughs) Sally Cohn said this. How can I? We are victims of our culture. And then she said this, how will it ever change? Because I have to admit this, we make our own culture. 
Do you see what she's saying? Even a lost person who has no life knows this. It isn't a cultural primer. It primarily a cultural problem. It's us. It's Cain in us. That's the problem that we have. A Cain culture demonstrates itself in our political hatred when Democrats hate Republicans and Republicans hate Democrats. It shows its ugly head in religious hatred when Jews hate Palestinians and vice versa and Arabs and on and on it goes. Ethnic hatred when Jews and Asians and blacks and whites are picked on Racist violence, on and on it goes. National hatred, Ukraine and Russia and the war that we are seeing lived out for us and played out for us on the TV. Media hatred, where people go back and forth and say all kinds of ugly things, even God's people that I am shocked by. Hatred, it really dominates, doesn't it? But I watched the second TED Talk because I expect the world to hate. But the second TED Talk was different. It was by a girl named Megan Phelps Roper. And the title of the book that she wrote was, I grew up up in Westboro Baptist Church and Why I Left. If you know anything about Westboro Baptist Church, they are the most radical, controversial church in America. They are picketing and hating literally everyone. In fact... She wrote, had a documentary made of her family. The title of the family documentary was this, The Most Hated Family in America. How would you like that one? She said this, and I quote, We, at our church, we hated everyone and everything that wasn't like us. And she listed some. We had signs that said, God hates gays, God hates the USA, God hates Jews. And we even went to people's funerals when they were mourning to picket them and put those signs in their face. She said she left her church along with her younger sister. And listen to this, and here's what she said. She realized that their, her church's hatred did not square with the Bible's teaching nor with Jesus' life. You mean she went to church and she had to figure that out on her own? She didn't get that in church? No, because the church, extreme as it was, you know what she got at her church? Hate. Hate was the message. See, in the church, in the, in the world, that's their message. That is the, see, but not in God's place, not in God's house. That should not be us. Because in, look at verse 15. Everyone who hates, His brother is a murderer, and no eternal life is in a murderer. Listen, if we have Jesus and we have eternal life, that should not be what we should not be known. Although God says he hates things, and we as Christians, we hate things. But that's not what we are known by. We should be known inside this church by the love that we have. Not a compromising, wishy sentimentalism. No, but a cruciform, cross-bearing love. See, our problem in our culture, and perhaps in some of us today, is we have Cain on the inside. In fact, Jude warns people, these ones went the way of Cain. The way of Cain. So it's not just an event. It's a lifestyle. The way of Cain. The way that you come to God on your own. You make your own turns. God, I come to church. I'm going to worship you and then live how I want to. I'm going to perform for you. I'm going to do my own kind of good works. See, that's what Cain does. He has God made in his image. 
But the Cain way is not the Christ way because the Cain way is selfishness. The Christ way is selflessness. And if you get in any way in front of anyone in our world and their expressive individualism and how they want to run their life and have their identity, you'll find out what that hatred is all about. Megan Phelps said she was worried about what her family resemblance, being like the hate in her church, what it really meant about who she was. See, she gets it. What they were doing revealed who they were. They didn't have life. What about you? What about Cain in you? Still unforgiving, are you? Still bitter? Still angry? Still holding a grudge? All of these years yet? Still giving the silent treatment to some people? Still spreading the venom of hate of the things that someone said to you or did to you years ago? And you're still telling people about them and how awful they are? Still harboring the hurt? Still replaying the videos of how you were mistreated? Still sleeping in different bedrooms in your marriage? Still having his and her finances? It's still too different worlds in your house. See, Cain-like in us, because it's the story of death. It's the story of hate. But that's not the only option, praise God. There is Christ-like, not just Cain-like. See, Christ-like is the story of life. It's the story of love. And in verse 19, our text, I'm sorry, verse number 16, the Bible says, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, Easter, see. See, all you got to do is read the Gospel of John and know that John himself, who wrote both First John and the Gospel, was a disciple of Jesus. He was greatly in touch. He was touched by Jesus' life. And over and over again, here's what Jesus said to John. He says that I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You read chapter 10 of John's gospel, and specifically chapter 15 and verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that you lay down your life for your friend. And Jesus called John his friend. Can you imagine the impact? God says, you're my friend. Let me show you how much I'm going to die for you. Do you know John was the only one at the cross? Not only did he hear about Jesus' cruciform love, he watched it. See, nobody was impacted by Jesus' love more than this guy. And he writes to him, and he says, this is the greatest love. This is how we know love. John says, that's how I know love. It radically changed me. Radically. He went from selfishness, son of thunder, to selflessness. He went out of in Cain to in Christ. Self-love to self-giving love. See, Cain took life. Jesus gives his life. They couldn't be any more opposite. So if you this morning, table, see, all of us, if you know Jesus and his love, and you've stood metaphorically before the cross, and you've heard his words, and they have changed your life, what will it look like? He says, verse 16, then here's what you should do. We ought to see the oughtness See the obligation. See the compellingness welling up in you. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, it's not optional. It's essential. It's not suggestive. It's imperative. If God so loved us, 411, we ought to love one another. And as James so nicely prayed, the vertical must produce the horizontal. 
Jesus didn't say, I died for you, now you die for me. No, I laid down my life for you, now you lay down your life for others. What would it look like? Let me get really practical, ready? Here's what it looks like. He doesn't just say these theological abstract terms. He says, if anyone, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods, and that's the same word used in 1 John 2, 16. Remember, pride of life, the word life, the world's goods. If you have money, you have wealth, you have substance in this world, you have those things, and you see your brother in need, yet you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? The rich man had lots of the world's goods in Luke 16. The beggar laid outside of his gate every day. The story goes that they both died and the rich man wakes up in hell and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. It's a pre-heaven condition. Do you know why the Lazarus, Lazarus went to heaven and, because the, and, the, and the, uh, the rich man went to hell? Well, of course, Pastor Walker, because all poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. No. Because by those standards in America, we're all pretty rich, and that would make me pretty scared. Now, you know the Bible says that the rich man went by and he kicked the guy and told him to get out, you're making me look bad. No. He didn't kick him. He didn't say all kinds of things to him, mean, none of those things. You know what he did for the, the uh, beggar? Nothing. He walked by him every day at his gate, having the world's goods, he did nothing. Do you know the story of Kitty Genovese? She was in her 20s. She was a bartender in New York City. She was walking home late at night, as she always did, about 2.30 in the morning on March 13, 1964. And she was attacked by a man with a knife. He tried to corner her in one of the building openings, and he stabbed her for the first time. But she was able to get away from him, and she ran screaming, on the block where she lived, lights went on in the building of the apartment where she lived. People looked out the window and saw what was happening. In fact, let me tell you, 37, 37 people saw what was happening. And you know what they did? Nothing. Zero. Do you know she was stabbed two more different occasions, two times each. When she was dying... One of her friends finally saw what was happening and came down, but she died within two minutes. They call it the bystander effect. is that you can see someone, great need, but you don't want to get involved. You don't want to risk it. You don't want to put yourself out there. Not only did they see it and not go down to help her, you know what? Not a, one of the 37 people, they didn't even call the police. The bystander effect. Jesus gave that bystander effect way before all this happened. We just call it the Good Samaritan. Walking down the road, seeing the guy half dead. And you know what? The religious people, they just walk by. The priest, right? The Levite, they go by. You know why? They had no life. Religious? Yes. Try to be moral? Yes. Life? No. They were dead. But it's the Samaritan, the bad guy that nobody wants to give any credit to. The guy that everybody wants to hate in that day. He stops because, you know, it's not what you are outside. It's what you are inside. Did you get it in the text? 
Do you know why people go by and the bystander effect is still true today and sometimes even in church? Do you know why it's still true? Look what the Bible says. How can you go by and have goods, see someone's in these, and here's what the problem is. Ready? You close your heart. That's the problem. Cain closed his heart toward Abel. Extreme example, but he murdered him. Does your faith open your eyes to see the needs of others here, elsewhere? Does your faith open your heart to help you not just see it, but to do something about it? Do you do something about it with your time and ministry? And so, do you do something with your house, with the hospitality, using it for others? Do you do it with your pray, prayers on your knees? Do you do it with visiting people in the hospital? Do you do it with your money? Do you indicate that you are Christ-like and not Cain-like? Because the difference between the two is not what you think. It is on the inside. The difference is a heart issue. It is whether you're spiritually alive and spiritually dead. Let me give an example. Open heart, open wallet. Open heart, open house. Open heart, open calendar. Let me flip it over for you. Closed heart, closed wallet. Closed heart, closed house. Closed heart, closed calendar because it's all about you. See, you're going to worship God, but you're going to do it on your terms. He closes out the text with one last reminder. Little children, little children, remember this is who you are. You're a child of God. You're not a child of the devil. He says, let me remind you something. Here's how you should love. Here's the final test, the last sentence. Ready? Let me summarize it, John says. Don't love in word or talk. See, who you are isn't what you say. You can, tell all, you can sing the songs all you want. You can tell everybody all the verses. You can do, verbalize all you want. Unless there's been a change on the inside that results on the outside. He says, don't love in word or talk. You love in deed. You do it in your works and truth. That's the reality he's looking for. So he wants to ask all of us today, look at what you do and tell me what it says about who you are. Does it say that you are Cain-like? Or does it say that you are Christ-like? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. What a perfect text for us today as we come to the table of Jesus. He laid down his life for you. What does that do for you? Does that just say thank you for a ticket to heaven? Or do you understand that eternal life starts now? The transformation is now. There is no gap between justification and glorification because it is rightly filled with sanctification, a change in your life. And by the way, not just in your personal morality or ethics, that's true, but in the way that you relate to others. How many hearts are closed today? Maybe you need to go home today and say to your wife, my heart is now open to you again. Maybe you need to tell your children, I've closed my heart to you. I gave up on you. Not anymore. Maybe you need to tell Jesus today, Jesus, my love has not been what it ought to be. And you know what? It's not outward hate as you would think it is. But God, is it anything less when I could be doing something with my money and my time and my energy and my life and my talents and I'm not and I'm doing nothing? Am I just walking by the beggar?
Oh, Lord. Father, you know our hearts. You know the reality of our true spiritual condition, whether death abides in us or life or we pass through it, whether we're Cain-like or we're Christ-like. Oh, Father, please help us. May your love so fill us that we would respond with this, to love our Lord, our God, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to do that because you've given us life through your cross, death, and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.